Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Samantha King is eight weeks pregnant when the UK enters its first lockdown. It is the start of a lonely pregnancy where social interactions and midwifery appointments are reduced to Zoom meetings and telephone consultations. The limited antenatal care has significant implications for Samantha and her birth experience. Gestational diabetes and preeclampsia are only suspected after the birth of her 11.3 pounds baby. It is at times a difficult story and is therefore not for everyone. But it is a story that sadly is not unique to Samantha and needs to be told. It brings into focus the importance of good maternity care and why, if there is ever another lockdown, we must ensure that women continue to receive adequate support and care throughout pregnancy, birth and motherhood. With us in the studio is Mary Wright, midwife and founder of Sage Bam, to answer any questions. You're listening to the podcast To Become a Mother and my name is Caroline Johansson. Samantha. Thank you. And welcome, Nairi. Hi. Hi. Samantha, you are mom to Henry, who is 20 months. 20 months, yes. Yeah, yeah. growing fast. Yeah. <laughs> and it's his birth story we will hear about today. Um, to start with, I'd like to go back to when you and your partner started talking about having a baby. Can you take us back to that time? Yeah, so we got married in 2017. And we decided, you know, we're going to wait a little bit until we start trying just because, you know, obviously financially, we just bought a house. We just got married. It's the two most expensive things you can kind of do within a year. And we're like, I think to throw a child in the mix is a bit silly (laughs) at the moment. And then around six months later, we're like, actually, you know what? We're never going to really be fully prepared to have a child. So why, why not start trying just in case there are issues? And um, I actually fell pregnant a few months after that, which unfortunately ended up in a miscarriage. Um, it was an early miscarriage. I think I was only about six, seven weeks, mm. but it was still, it was a shock. And to have to go through that after that, I was a bit like, you know what, let's just wait. There's no mm. rush. You just wanted kind of time to heal and sort things out in terms of like with work and things like that. And then... Um, in January 2020 I turned 30 (laughs) and um, we were actually in New York and we're like okay you know what feeling a little bit better you know maybe now's that maybe over the next few months we'll see where it goes and we'll start trying again and then little did I know when I got back three weeks later I was actually pregnant so (laughs) wow yeah it kind of happened quite fast and it was a even though we'd spoken about starting a family when you see those two red lines on a pregnancy stick you're like oh wow this is this is happening again. Yeah. (laughs) Got there. And um, I was in the bathroom because my husband, David, he works really early shifts. So he he leaves the house at like half five. And um, I got up and I was like, right, you know, first we of the day, let's do this test. Because I just felt, I felt different. I was really tired. And I was like, jet lag doesn't last this long. It can't be that. And I remember like my breasts were just like really tingly. And I was like, something's going on. It's definitely different. And yeah, and took a test and I was like, oh my God. So I rang him at like 10 past six and he's like, what's wrong? What's wrong? I was like, I'm pregnant. And he's like, how do you feel? (laughs) I was like, I feel good. Like, I feel fine. Like, yeah, this is good. This is good. And then, yeah. And then literally a couple of weeks later, had a bit of a scare. So um, I was out doing a day visit with work in Cambridge and I just went to the toilet. Obviously, I was fully aware that I was pregnant, but I was keeping it 
we were very much keeping it to ourselves because what happened previously when I had the miscarriage months before, we'd obviously, you know, in the excitement, you tell your family, you tell a few close friends and obviously then having to tell them actually I wasn't pregnant anymore. It, that was probably the worst part. So we're like, right, let's just keep it to ourselves and see what happens, see what progresses. And um, I went to the toilet and I wiped and there was blood. And immediately I just started to panic and think, oh God, this is happening again. And I went home and David came back from work and I was just in tears. And he was like, well, are you sure? I was like, but I'm bleeding. Like, I think, I think I'm going to lose the baby again. So the next day I called the doctors and went in and they were like, you know, what, what's happened and things. And I said to him, he's like, I'm having another miscarriage. And the doctor actually said to me, he's like, let's take a breath. He's like, we don't know yet this is a miscarriage. He said, so we're not counting it as a miscarriage. So, so I'm going to send you to the hospital. You'll have a scan and we'll see where it goes from there. So went to the hospital and then the scanner that day had actually clocked off. <laughs> so <laughs> I had to wait another two days. And then I went in and I was actually in the same room where I found out about the miscarriage. So I was really anxious, really nervous. And I didn't want to look at the screen. I didn't, I just looked at the ceiling and all I heard was the nurse going, yeah, if you look at that screen there, that little red dot, that the, the little black dot, that's your, that's your baby. <laughs> I was just like, oh my God, I'm still pregnant. Mm. <laughs> and then the realization of, oh my God, I'm actually pregnant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then the whole world just went, went to pop with COVID. So yeah. <laughs> it must've been such a relief after those two agonizing days of seeing that. Yeah. So such good news. I was so nervous because like the doctors are, you know, you can go home and take a pregnancy test to make sure. And I didn't want to mm. for the fear that I would start to see the lines getting faint again. Yeah. And I just couldn't go through that again. I was like, nope, I'm going to try and wait and we'll see what happens. And then because after I had the scan to confirm that, yes, I am actually pregnant, the nurse at the time then said, oh, we're going to bring you back in two weeks time to make sure that the baby's actually growing and that everything's okay. So then I had another two week wait. And then when I finally went back and um, that was actually the last scan that my husband was allowed to come with me before the COVID restrictions yeah. came in. And um, we we saw the little heartbeat oh. and you could just see it like yeah. moving and it looks so tiny. It's just like a little bean and it was just amazing. And so then that was the moment like, okay, right. Feeling a lot more comfortable about this. Yeah. And so at eight weeks pregnant the country goes into lockdown yes is that right can you describe how your care changed after that honestly I didn't see anyone I saw a midwife for my booking in appointment at the start of the eight weeks which was the Monday and then by the Friday that's when Boris announced like everything is shutting down just like you know stay home no business is open and then from that point on, I didn't see any medical help. My um, midwife appointments were switched to phone only. Mm. So having a telephone call like every three to four weeks after that, and it was just the same generalization of, so how are you feeling? You know, is everything okay? And I was, well, I assume so. I've, I've mm. You know, it's my first time that I've got this far in my pregnancy. So yeah. You know, I'm, I've got the morning sickness, <laughs> check, got that, you know, and the weather was really hot as well. So I had moments of like getting really lightheaded if, like, say if I was standing cooking and I'd have to sit down and um, I was just told that that's normal and I was told the whole way through, you know, you've got, you know, easy pregnancy, no, no concerns or anything. So you can have any kind of labor you want So start thinking about it. And because in the midst of all this, I was furloughed as well, so... Mm. At eight weeks pregnant, country goes in lockdown. Nine weeks pregnant, I was furloughed. And then that was it. Mm. I was at home by myself, just getting rounder and um, just waiting for that 12-week scan. And even then, my 12-week scan was delayed by two weeks because for some reason, my um, information wasn't put on the system to trigger for me to get a letter to invite me in for my scan. So I was having to chase the local midwives and say, I haven't had my 12-week scan, you know, I'm mm. over 12 weeks, I'm really concerned because I want to make sure, you know, everything's yeah. going well and stuff. And obviously I was aware that you're supposed to have like certain tests done and that to make sure that, 
you know, looking at the risks of if your baby has yeah. any um, issues. And yeah, I had to wait two weeks for that. And then I finally went in at 14 weeks. And that was, that's the first time I saw someone face to face. And then again, after that, I didn't see anyone face to face again until I had my 20 week scan. And then I didn't actually see a midwife until I was 28 weeks. Wow. Going back to the um, tests that you do at 12 weeks, Nairi, what, what are those tests? It's usually done between 11 and 13 weeks. So I'm not quite sure what they offered for you afterwards, but they work out the risk of your baby having a chromosome abnormality. And it's done through a scan, a blood test and calculating the maternal age and combining those three things and then working out a risk. So one chromosome abnormality is trisomy 21 because it affects the 21st pair of chromosomes and that's also called um, Down syndrome. So most people have heard of that one. But the other two, trisomy 13 and 18, a more serious but more unusual Edwards and Patel syndrome. And it is really important to find out risk factors for those because babies with those conditions often don't survive. And, you know, for anybody with a baby with a chromosome abnormality, they have lots of decisions to make. So finding out early is, is a good thing. And then if somebody is deemed to be high risk, which is calculated as the risk being greater than one in 250, they will then be offered something called non-invasive prenatal testing, which is where they can detect some of the baby's DNA in the mother's blood. It's pretty amazing, actually. Mm, yeah, that is um, nice. And it's sort of taken over from the invasive tests that we may have known about before, the amniocentesis, etc. So it's a a much more straightforward and accurate way of finding out if a baby has a problem like that. But they also will do a comprehensive scan at that 11 to 13 weeks where they look for other things as well. Mm -hmm. um, and because scan technology has moved on so much, things that they used to find out at 20 weeks, they're often able to discover much earlier. So it's a really important scan. Mm, yeah. And, you know, I, I dread to think about the people that were not as um, organized as you, Samantha, and, and, and pushed to find out what was going on. Mm, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people perhaps just missed out on it altogether. And how were you feeling otherwise physically? Were you okay throughout pregnancy or did you have any ailments or other things? So I had the lovely morning sickness, which mm. wasn't just morning. It mm. was all day. And I was quite grateful for being furloughed when that kicked in. Because um, in my previous job, I would travel all over the UK and it was a very social job, you know, late nights and things. And it's centered around the alcohol industry. So obviously all those things I couldn't do, mm. <laughs> being pregnant and being sick. So I was, well, I was quite grateful for being at home for that. And I think it lasted from maybe from when I was about nine weeks up until I was about 22 weeks. Oh, yeah, and a long time. A long time. But it wasn't like debilitating. I wasn't vomiting constantly. Mm. It would be, I would vomit once or twice a day. And then it was just like having the worst hangover for those weeks. You just constantly feel like you're going to be sick, but you're not. And then the only time I would feel better is if I ate a jacket potato and had a can of Coke. That was the only thing that kind of settled <laughs> my stomach for about an hour or so. So then I could have a nap. <laughs> but it was just little quirks like that. But um, I... And my bump had started to show around 13 weeks was when you could really start to see like, okay, mm. she's not just gained weight, like mm. it is actually a pregnant belly. And then I kind of, you know, grew gradually. And then I think is when I hit about 24 weeks and then just suddenly there was like a basketball there yeah. and then it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And when I had my first face-to-face -face midwife appointment at 28 weeks so obviously they do the the measuring of the bump and my estimate was that I was on the 50th centile and they're like that that's good that's healthy you know that's average that's smack bang in the middle that's perfect and then at my next face-to-face -face appointment which I believe was 32 weeks it jumped up to the 97th centile oh wow and they said they were going to keep an eye on it and if it dropped down then they would put me forward for a scan 
So then the next appointment came along and I was still at the 97th centile, so they left it. And I think that was kind of the, the time of when I started to have issues with swelling. My ankles were so swollen every time, you know, if I went out for a walk, which I did daily, I would come back and my ankles were like the size of my thighs. They were just huge. And I had to take all my rings off because my fingers were so swollen. And it was summer as well. So I just thought, oh, it's the heat. Mm. You know, pregnant during the heat, you're going to swell a bit and water retention and all that. And I didn't really think much of it. And then I started to flag it to them, the midwives, when I was having my face-to-face appointments, like, my ankles are really swollen. Like, is this Mm. normal? And they're like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's just part of being pregnant. And then even in one of my later appointments, I think it was around my due date. So my due date was the 26th of October mm. and um, it was coming up to that. And so they did it where um, they do the uh, the glorious uh, cervix stretch. And um, the midwife even said, oh, I'm not going to ask you to take your leggings off because I can see your ankles are really swollen. So it was picked up, picked on. up on, but nothing really, yeah, not acted on. And then I think... I think around that time as well, I'd had a urine sample that come had, had been flagged as, you know, something wasn't quite right. And that, so they, they sent off to the doctors to request an appointment and further test. And it took four weeks to come through. So by the time that came through, I said, well, I've had two further urine tests that have come back clear. So mm-hmm. if you think I still need to be checked, that's fine. But I'm just telling you this is what's happened. And they said, oh, OK, we'll leave it then and we'll let it go. So I was like, OK. You know. Nari, in terms of swelling like that, is that something that midwives and, and maternity care professionals should be observant of? We do expect some ankle swelling in the last month of pregnancy. It's normal and also swelling of fingers and it's definitely worse in hot weather. But, you know, it's okay if it's just that in isolation, but what was missing in Samantha's case, was a sort of thorough assessment of everything that was going on. Mm -hmm. And it's clear to see that a lot of that was because of COVID. So um, did you have a glucose blood test at 28 weeks? So I did have that. Yes. And I was told that it was fine. Okay. But then after having Henry, and when I took Henry for his first set of jabs at eight weeks, my doctor said to me, your glucose levels were high in your 28-week test. Ah, so, you know, that perhaps should have given some cause for concern then. But also, really, when you jumped from the 50th centile to the 97th, that should have been an immediate scan at that stage where an assessment was made. The urine, do you know what was found in the urine on that occasion? I think that occasion, yeah, they said the protein level was high. Okay, so that can be indicative of something called preeclampsia and therefore the swelling in the legs becomes more significant because that swelling is also a symptom of preeclampsia. And how was your blood pressure, Samantha? So I was told throughout that my blood pressure was fine. But again, I personally feel that because I didn't see a midwife from eight weeks to 28 weeks, they might have just been benching it on what my blood pressure was at 28 weeks. Yes. We, we don't know what happened between those weeks. No, absolutely. Because obviously no, I wasn't tested for anything. Yes. And um, and I personally think that that's probably why that wasn't looked at. And again, I am quite a tall person. I'm five foot ten. And it was commented on like, oh, you're going to have a big baby. Like, because your height, mm. like, is your husband tall? Are like family members tall? And I was like, well, I'm five foot ten. My husband's six foot. We've got brothers who are six foot two, six foot five, respectively. Mm. So it was always kind of mentioned that I was going to have a big baby, but no one kind of looked into it a bit further to actually confirm yes. how big is big, pretty much. Mm. Yes, it sounds like you were just the unfortunate victim of of not good quality antenatal care. Yeah, um, and you know, it it doesn't sound like. It was a particular individual. It just sounds like the whole system, well, I know the whole system broke down because I was yeah. working in it. And and I would say that the NHS is still really struggling now to recover. Yeah. And there are so many amazing people that work in it, but you were the victim of everything that went wrong <laughs> during that period with, with yeah. the NHS. Yeah. yeah. And preeclampsia, can you just briefly describe what that is, Nari? 
It's a complicated condition that involves many organs in the body and can be really serious for babies and for mums. And it often results in babies having to be born early. Um, it increases the risk of serious problems like abruption of the placenta, of stillbirth, of hemorrhage, and ultimately uh, women can fit and it can cause maternal and baby death. So it can be a very serious condition, but if it's picked up nice and early and women get good treatment, it can be managed very well. But it does usually result in this sort of slightly earlier birth of a baby, even when it's well managed. And so your due date is the 26th of October. And when do you start feeling that something might be happening? On the labor front. (laughs) It was actually, it was the 3rd of November. I woke up at 1am and I was like, something feels weird. Mm. And I went to the toilet and I saw that like the mucus plug had started to come away. So I was like, okay, I think, you know, I think this is the start of things. And then the contractions started and they were really, you know, at, at that point, you couldn't even time them. They were very sporadic and obviously it's 1am and I was lying there's like maybe I've just got stomach ache you know maybe it may not even be contractions but we'll just see and um because the 3rd November was the Tuesday and I was told that if there were no signs I'd be induced on the Friday which was two weeks after my original due date so I texted a midwife and I was like contractions have started so obviously I won't be at my appointment it was Mm. booked for the next day and I just remember the pain in my lower back and it it was just getting worse and worse. And then obviously like the contractions starting to get closer together. And at this point, it's much later in the evening on the third. And I just, I said to my husband, it's like, I need, can you just take me to hospital? Because I just need something. I haven't slept. I'm yeah. so tired. I'm in so much pain. I just want someone to check me over. So he took me to the hospital And they checked me and they were like, yep, you know, very early contractions, not even dilated. So here, we'll give you some cocodamol so that you can at least get a couple hours sleep. I was like, perfect. I just want to sleep. Mm -hmm. So I went home, took them. By that point, it's the 4th of November and it's early in the morning and the contractions are starting to get closer. But again, it's been over 24 hours and I'm just on the floor, like leaning over an exercise ball. My husband's just like rubbing my back because the pain in my back was just so immense. Mm. And then it got to the point later in the afternoon, I was like, because I was timing the contractions, like, right, they're at that point where I can go in. Because what I'd been told um, from the healthcare is obviously around that time, around end of October, early November, there was, you know, word of a potential second lockdown. It still wasn't confirmed if partners could come into the hospital or not when you were go- when you're going into labour. If you weren't in established labour, they wouldn't let you stay. They'd rather you stay at home. So I had all this in my head and I was like, I want to make sure I'm definitely in established labour because I don't want to go in by myself. Mm. I don't want to be in a room by myself mm. going through this. And I don't want my husband to have to sit in the car <laughs> and just wait for me to text, say, right, okay, you can, you're allowed to come in now. So, um... I rang my midwife as like, my contractions are at the point where I can go in, you know, I, I want to go in, I want to I wanna be seen because it's now heading towards the 36-hour mark. And and she said, you're, you're fine to go in. She said, but I think I'm pretty sure they're just going to turn you away and send you back home. That's fine. I just want to get checked out. Yeah. So went to the hospital and um, they took me into the side room obviously did a few checks and then they took my blood pressure and they're like, your blood pressure is really high. We're going to leave you here for an hour and we'll come back and check on you. And thankfully they let my husband stay in the room with me, but he wasn't allowed to leave that room. So we were both in this tiny little room and then they came back in an hour, blood pressure is still too high. So I was like, okay. And then they checked me and said, you're actually three centimeters dilated. Let me speak to a midwife and we'll see what the plan is. And then they came back in and said, right, okay, you're three centimetres dilated, your blood pressure is still too high, we're going to keep you in. Um, we are going to um, potentially induce you, break your waters and take it from there. But what will happen now is because we're going to give you tablets to bring your blood pressure down, you're going to have to be monitored constantly. So you are going to be on the bed 
you won't be able to move around, which is what I originally wanted mm. during my labor. I wanted to be able to move and, you know, just not be tied to a bed essentially. And, um, so I was like, okay, if, if that's what, what you need to do. And they ended up giving me three of these blood pressure tablets and my blood pressure was still too high. So they did it. They broke my waters and that was probably about 8 PM on the 4th of November. Mm. But then Henry, my baby, so we didn't know what we were having. <laughs> we kept it as a surprise. He wasn't born until 5 AM. So at that point I'd been in late, well, I'd had contractions for over two days. Yeah. I'd hardly slept. I was just absolutely exhausted. And um, I was only given gas and air prior to obviously starting to push and things. And then because I found out that Henry's back to back mm. and that's why the pressure on my back was so immense, especially with the contractions. So um, I had like a monitor on my belly, but where he was back to back, they couldn't always pick him up. And they kept losing his heartbeat. So obviously I remember the machine because it's right by my head and I can hear it beeping and then it would sometimes stop and then it beep again and it would stop. So I was starting to panic and they put a clip on his head. But then the clip fell out and my husband was trying to get the midwife's attention going, that that doesn't look right. And he's pointing at the machine and she's like, no, no, it's, it's fine. He said, no, like that's not right. The machine's not right. Something's wrong. And then she realized, oh, the clip's fallen off his head and then had to put it back in. And I was just on the bed and I was just lying there like completely helpless because I was like, I don't really, I was just in so much pain and I was so tired. And then when they said, right, okay, now's the time to push. So I pushed for an hour and they had put my leg in, my legs in stirrups, which I don't really remember happening. I just remember my legs being moved and they were like elevated. And I pushed for an hour and then they brought a doctor in and said, right, okay, this situation been pushing for an hour you know baby's obviously not here what do we do next and the doctor said okay we'll try pushing for another 15 minutes and we'll see what happens and at this point I'm still like I've had no pain relief I I'm in agony I, I can't move I'm tired I my husband told me I was actually falling asleep in between contractions and just going back to this pain relief point why is that because it sounds like you are in a lot of pain and it's difficult I, and they're only prescribing gas and air. Is there a reason for that? Do they tell you or is it your choice? They didn't tell me. It definitely wasn't my choice. I said to my husband when I went in, I was like, I definitely want an epidural because yeah. this pain is incredible. Like I just can't. And I always, I'd always strived myself. Like I, pre-pregnancy, I was a very fit person. You know, I'd go to the gym four or five times a week. I was very athletic and I was like, you know, that's why during my pregnancy, I walked every day. I'd go for two hour walks every day. And I was mm. still very mobile throughout my entire pregnancy. And so I was like a very strong person. My pain threshold was strong, but I was like, no, I, I need an epidural. Like, mm. I need to have something to take the edge off because this is just too much. I can't, mm. I can't do anything because it's just blocking everything. It's blocking like my mind, my thought process, everything. And um, I'm not too sure as to why an epidural was never administered early and then because it got to the point where I'd been pushing this extra 15 minutes and I said but I haven't had an epidural where's my epidural mm. and at this point the doctor came in and said right okay this is a situation your heart rate and your blood pressure is just too erratic the baby's starting to struggle now as well the baby's too far down for us to take you in for a c-section so either we do forceps get him out now get baby out now or we will take you to theatre give you an epidural we'll have to wait 20 minutes but your husband can't come with you mm. and so at that point in my head I was like well you've told me baby needs to come out and you're telling me that if I have an epidural that's going to delay and that my husband can't be there with me mm. do forceps like just get the baby out and so at that point they came and um Obviously, they informed other people around, right, okay, forceps, get everything ready. My legs are still in stirrups. And because I hadn't had any pain release, I said, okay, what we're going to do is going to inject you to like numb the area pretty much. And at this point, they admit they, well, they did an episiotomy. They did that to the angle on one side. I'm, I'm still not too sure what, what side, surprisingly. And um, then they used forceps to get Henry out. 
And but I think where where they just administered the numbing or the pain relief, whatever it was, it didn't work. And I felt everything. Mm. And I just remember thinking, I, I screamed. <laughs> I but I had the gas and air in my mouth. So I think that kind of muffled <laughs> the noise. But I felt him coming out. And I just remember it felt like my pelvis like broke mm. because of like him coming out. And then because we didn't know what we we're having, they held him up and they're like, it's a boy. And I just remember looking up and it sounds so crass, but I was just like, all I could see was this bright red ball bag. And I was like, oh my God, that's a boy. Like <laughs> that really is a boy. <laughs> and then they they took him off to weigh him. And um, so obviously my husband's there and he's like, oh, like, what's the weight? What's the weight? And they're like, we don't know. So, what, what do you mean you don't know? Oh, well, in kilos, he's 5.2 kilos. And we're like, well, what, what's that in pounds? They said, well, we don't know because it's off the chart. And they held this chart up and it only went up to five kilos. <laughs> and I was just like, oh my God, what does that mean? Like, <laughs> what's just happened? Um, and it turns out he was 11 pound too. He <laughs> was a big baby very big baby very big baby and I was just lying there like I, I still didn't really understand what just happened yeah. obviously I knew the pain and then they put him on my chest to obviously try and do you know the golden hour and try and get him to latch on and things but at this point because where I had I had monitors on me I had blood pressure on my arm I had a cannula in my hand I was kind of strapped up already so I hadn't prepared so I still had my top on, so I had to cut my top off to get to the skin to then get him against me. And then after that, I remember they injected me um, in order to help the placenta out. And just um, going back just a step to the birth and the episiotomy and everything that just happened there. Nari, first of all, what is an episiotomy if people are wondering? And what is your take on, on this situation? Well, going back, first of all, to the pain relief, I don't really understand it because Samantha was an excellent candidate for somebody that needed an epidural because I could almost tell that the baby had been back to back because of the length of time she'd been at home and the fact that she had excruciating back pain. And then when they monitored him, it was quite clear that he was in the back-to-back -back position. And for somebody who had been through such a long labour and was exhausted, an epidural would have given her a really important rest and given her then more energy to hopefully push her baby out. But also it would have lowered her blood pressure. And Samantha had high blood pressure and epidurals are very good for lowering blood pressure. So I'm quite surprised at the decision making. I can only assume that it was COVID related. Mm. An episiotomy is a surgical cut to um, enlarge the opening of the perineum to give more room for the baby to come out. It was a good idea in um, Samantha's case because, well, they have to do it for forceps anyway, but when you have a known big baby, one of the risk factors is that the baby can get stuck coming out. Mm. And so therefore they need more room to do various maneuvers to enable a baby to come out. And thankfully that wasn't necessary. So that was really good. But it's basically a cut where it's angled away from the anal sphincter to avoid damaging that muscle. Mm. So that's why it's done at that sort of 45 degree angle. Have I got 45 degrees right? I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and so the person doing it will cut usually to the left-hand side. So therefore, it would be on your right-hand side. Yeah. Samantha, yes. And it does actually heal very well. Mm. People are very worried about them, but um, as long as you get good care and you eat well and there's good hygiene they usually repair themselves very well. Mm. Um, they do take obviously a bit of time and it means that breastfeeding can be challenging because you're sitting on the wound um, a lot. So um, you need help with breastfeeding, you need good pain relief, but um, it's just basically a very important manoeuvre sometimes in having a baby. 
And has it also something to do with wanting to avoid a tear? Not really, actually, because if there is a choice between a cut and a tear, a tear will often heal better because you have two rough edges that knit together. But it is avoiding a tear down into the anal sphincter. So if you feel that somebody is going to tear badly, then an episiotomy can be done for that reason as well. But for a forceps delivery, which is why Samantha had it, it's done to allow more room to put the forceps alongside the baby's head. Mm. So it sounds like it was very, well, I would say traumatic, uh, that bit of the birth. Yeah, well, sad to say that that actually wasn't the traumatic bit for me. It was the... There's the next bit that followed, like after the, so after the placenta had been delivered, I started to go very faint. And all I remember is it was like being underwater and all the sounds are muffled. And then suddenly I'm getting pinched and I can feel pinches like on the back of my hand, in the corner of my elbow, on the side of my leg. And at this point, my husband's holding my hand and Henry's on my chest. And I'm just looking at my husband and I'm just saying, do you want to hold Henry? And I just kept repeating it, saying, do you want to hold Henry? And he's just looking at me and I see him mouth something, but I don't know what he says. And then that's the last thing I remember. And what I didn't realize at the time and what I found out afterwards that actually I'd hemorrhaged and my husband was standing in my blood and he was just, sorry. He was just holding my hand and he was, he didn't want to hold Henry because he wanted me to hold him as long as possible because he thought I was going to die. Because obviously, you know, when you go in for labour, you don't really expect (laughs) to be in that situation. And because what what he told me afterwards as well was um, they'd actually called a code red and um, there were sirens going off and people running in trying to get to me. And he was just stood there just holding my hand. Everyone's going, don't worry, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. She's going to be fine. And he was just like, but I'm in, I'm in her blood. That, mm. You know, that, that, that's not fine. Mm. And I, I don't remember anything. I, well, Dave and I have only spoken about this twice maybe because it's really hard to talk about. And, um, we think there's about five hours that I can't account for. So those first five hours of Henry's life, I I don't I don't have any memories. I don't know what happened. Mm. I yeah, it was it was really scary. Mm. And then I remember when I came round and obviously I was still in the bed and I just looked up and see I'm in a white room and there was light coming in. And I just remember sitting there and I was like my god is 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 this it like Mm. has something really terrible happened and then all of a sudden it's like I came into back into focus and I looked and him and David and Henry were to my to my left and I was like oh no okay like it's okay I'm here Mm. and I then just remember the pain because what had happened was even though they'd done the episiotomy I'd actually torn on the other side at an angle thankfully so I had two cuts essentially and I tried to get up because I was like I need to go to the toilet Mm. and I tried to stand up and I passed out so David had to call and like pull the cord and get the get some help to try and pick me back up Mm. (laughs) essentially yeah and then I just remember a midwife came in and she just looked at us both she's like you look shell-shocked like what's happened and we were like we we don't really know Mm don't really know what's happened and I found out later that um the midwives were asking David uh, whilst when Henry first came out and they're like did you not know who was going to be this big and he was like no no one told us no one told us that he was that size Mm. and so that bleed that you had the hemorrhage that you had was that from the extra scar or was it from the placenta so I don't know no what happened during my labor I was never debriefed by a doctor I was never debriefed by a midwife no one told me what happened I found out about the tear from my husband he told me I found out that apparently my placenta was swollen I found out from David 
everything I found out was secondhand and moving on a bit forward. So I was told at that time, once I just had Henry, there is like a birth afterthoughts support group that you can actually request to have a meeting with one of the midwives who will take you through your notes and explain what's happened to you. And again, because of COVID, I had to wait six months for that. So I spent six months not even knowing what grade tear I had, let alone what had happened. And it was really hard. And then like you say, Nairi, with the, um, with the episiotomy, obviously as that's healing, you're sat on it. And after having Henry and after the hemorrhage and everything, and then it got to about 4 p.m. in the afternoon and they're like, look, we're going to have to move you to the labour ward, but obviously your husband can't come with you. He's going to have to go. So I was moved to the labour ward and at this point it's 5th of November, it's fireworks night, and I just remember I was lying in, in the bed and had Henry on me and the fireworks were going off and I was just in so much pain because every time I tried to move, I was on the episiotomy or I was on the tear, so I couldn't. I couldn't move comfortably trying to get Henry to get him to latch on was excruciating and every time I moved I thought Mm. I was like doing more damage and it was it was just a horrible horrible time Mm. to be honest. Can understand. I'm so sorry you went through that it Mm. just sounds horrific and I'm sorry that you didn't get the debriefing because I think that that can be so useful so helpful. Mm. No in terms of the hemorrhage just um from your experience what would you guess could have happened um a forceps delivery always increases the risk of having a hemorrhage because it's usually happening because a labor has been prolonged and in Samantha's case her uterus had been working really hard for three days and three nights And it was an overstretched uterus because when you have a very big baby, you have a very big placenta. You also have extra amniotic fluid. So Samantha's poor uterus, and I do like to think about uteruses as as, um, people because it's helpful, (laughs) but I think that it was a, a very overworked, tired uterus. And what happens when a placenta comes away is you need all of the individual muscle fibers in the uterus to contract down to slow the the bleeding. And I just think Samantha's uterus had given up the ghost. It was exhausted. Mm. And, you know, it was very likely to have completely relaxed. So whilst there would have been some bleeding, undoubtedly from the episiotomy and from the tear, the kind of major hemorrhage which Samantha is describing would I think almost um, certainly have been from the placenta. And, you know, we're talking about big volumes of blood and it's why Samantha passed out. And the whole thing just sounds awful. So I'm really sorry that it happened to you. Yeah. And so you are in the hospital. Yeah. And you're obviously very exhausted and tired and in pain. How long do you stay in hospital for and when do you get home? So I stayed in overnight and um, they were, I was waiting for um, obviously Henry to have his various checks, his hearing, his, obviously his weight, he passed that with flying colours and like all of his little blood tests (laughs) and everything. (laughs) And um, they actually let me go, go home around three o'clock in the afternoon, I believe. And I was just... I was so happy. I just wanted to get home and, you know, because not only had I spent the night alone after what just happened, but my husband had. Mm. He'd had to go home to an empty house and just because the 5th of November was the official start of the second lockdown. Mm. So he couldn't even go to anyone and gain some comfort about what just happened. So he came and got me and we went home and we had our first night home and obviously as babies do they scream all night (laughs) and um then we had a midwife visit the next day where obviously they take the baby's weight to make sure they haven't lost too much weight and unfortunately because Henry had lost a lot of weight he'd lost 11% of his body weight so I got sent back into the hospital Mm. for him to be monitored 
over a time period to make sure that he was feeding properly. So I had to go back into the hospital by myself and I cried the entire car journey there because Mm. I just did not want to go back. (laughs) I was just like, I feel like I've just got out of there and I'm being sent back. But also as well, I felt like I failed Henry because he hadn't eaten. I think he'd only latched on a couple of times in that kind of 24 hour time period. And then when I got into the hospital, because I, I was trying to breastfeed and obviously no milk had come in yet and that would take time. And when I got into the hospital, they said, okay, like we'll do a little meal plan for him. And what we'll do is we do top ups. So you breastfeed first and then you can top up with formula and I just sat there and I was like why wasn't I told this before no one told me that I could top up I said otherwise I would have done it and I wouldn't be back here Mm -hmm. I could still be at home (laughs) and then again they watched him and checked him and see the meal plan was taking effect and then they weighed him later on the next day and he managed to gain I think about 500 grams and okay like we're fine for you to go back home Mm -hmm. so I got sent back home again but then at this point been in and out of hospital I was just so tired and I was just in so much pain but also David had already used a week of his paternity leave because of where my contractions had started and it's taken so long so then he was only at home with us for a week and then he had to go back to work Mm. and then obviously lockdown restrictions are in place so again no help but at least at this point you could form a bubble Mm. and my parents live quite close so my mum like my mum and my dad were were our bubble essentially and my mum took some time off and she spent a week with me because even trying to like you say trying to breastfeed with an episiotomy is it was so difficult and our house is (laughs) our house is a lovely house but it's got three floors Mm. so trying to get down those stairs it was a very slow slow process for me and it took me a long time to gain like more mobility and stuff as like the tear and the episiotomy healed. You must have been exhausted from the blood loss as well. And yeah. Like, and the labour being so long. Yeah. Yeah. I was, to be honest, it's all just a bit of a blur now. And mm. I just remember, I, I don't think I've ever cried so much, <laughs> surprisingly. Like I was just so exhausted and then like trying to breastfeed and then because at times because obviously I was still so swollen as well Mm. even after the birth like my ankles were still the size of my thighs and I remember I was in the shower and I was trying to have a shower and I just looked down and I was like I don't think my ankles are ever going to come back like it just sounds really silly but I was like oh my god my ankles they're gone (laughs) um yeah everything was just was just so hard and then it was just the fact that the lockdown was in place again as well. So I couldn't, even if I, even if I needed help, I couldn't get it. Mm. You know, you weren't allowed to have people in your house apart from your bubble. And my parents were still working. So there's only so much that they could do. But thankfully, you know, I got to see a midwife face to face for, for the three days. And then like the time after that as well. And then the health visitor came around when I was, 10 days and um, postpartum and it was actually I told her what happened with the birth and obviously cried a lot and just said you know I don't really understand what happened and and she was the one who told me about the birth trauma association she said there's you know a group a Facebook group you know, like a support group and you can share your story if you want it's up to you which up until now I haven't really mm. and um but she said, you know, she was the first person who said that it sounds like you've ha- you've had birth trauma. Mm. Like, you know, I think you need to look at look into getting some help or, you know, just speaking to someone or having something there that you can go to. Mm. And so I started to do that. But again, it was a very slow recovery. I was I was on iron tablets to help with the blood loss. I was on them for about three months, I think. And I was meant to have blood test done every three months but again that only happened once and Mm. didn't happen and then it wasn't until my birthing afterthought session which was six months postpartum that I kind of found out what happened Mm. but still you know I've still got questions and you know 
thankfully I've got some answers today as to understand a bit more as to what happened and why it happened. Mm. And during that that talk, they were like, well, you know, when you have your next child, and I just, I laughed. I was like, next child? Mm. <laughs> like after that, I, d- I don't think there will, there will be another child. And the midwife who was doing the session, she was like, oh, well, don't worry, because next time, you know, you'll be monitored a lot more closely and what will happen is we'll have your blood in the room so that if anything does happen again, because you are at a higher risk of having another hemorrhage because you've already had one, you know, your blood will be in the room, it'll be available and, um, you know, we we probably won't go down the natural birth route again, we'll probably have to have a C-section. And I just said to her, I was like, honestly, I don't think that's ever going to happen because... I'm scared now. Mm-hmm. Now that's happened once. I feel lucky that it didn't turn out worse. So why would I why would I put myself through that risk? Why would I put Henry and my husband through that risk of me potentially being more damaged, mm-hmm. you know, physically, mentally? Why why would I why would I do that? Mm-hmm. And they just seemed so intent on saying, Oh, don't worry, next time, next time. That's just it just really really put me off to be honest <laughs> mm-hmm. I can understand that yeah well thank you very much for sharing your story Samantha um, okay. yeah it was very hard to listen to at times mm. it must have been a very difficult experience yeah so thank you thank you, thank you very much What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.